Hi there, and welcome to Vineyard Church Delaware County's podcast. My name is Michael Hansen. I'm the lead pastor here at the church, and I am so glad that you have joined us for this week's message. I'm going to have a little bit more to say at the end, but for now, enjoy the teaching. All right, here to kick off our 40-day series, let's welcome Heather Camaro. Thank you, Michael. Well, welcome. Welcome. Um, I just want to say good evening and and good morning to those of you who are online. Uh, I want to just welcome you, especially if you're new. We hope that you feel at home here, Um, even though we're socially distanced and we all have masks on, that you feel at home and uh, that that you can uh, just join us in in our time here today. Um, Well, we are starting a new series, just like Michael said. And it is going to take us right in through till Easter, and it's entitled The King's Cross. Now, we base this series, kind of stolen it a little bit, from this really wonderful book by Timothy Keller, and it is based on the Gospel of Mark, and the book is King's Cross. Now, in this series, we're going to be looking at the second half of Mark's Gospel, starting actually at the end of chapter 8, which I know might seem like a really strange place to start a new series, but this passage is such a critical point in Mark's writing. See, what we know about Mark is that Mark, the the gospel of Mark, is broken up into two blocks. It's broken up into chapters 1 through 8 and then 9 through 16. Now, chapters 1 through 8, everyone is blown away by Jesus. They think, wow, this is a really amazing guy. Who is this Jesus? And that's the question that they're answering in the first half of the Gospel of Mark. And then, in the last half of Mark, we watch this surprising paradox of how Jesus becomes the Messianic King. Now, the passage that we're looking at today, at the end of chapter 8, is the hinge between these two blocks of writing. It's the hinge. It's the most pivotal passage in the whole book of Mark. And what Mark so beautifully does here is that he places right at the center, 16 chapters, chapter 8, right at the center, so strategically, here right at the center is this acknowledgement of who Jesus is that he is the Messiah, that he is the Messiah. Now, up to this point, no one has outright said, even Jesus himself, who he actually is. So this is the first time that we see it in the Gospel of Mark. But here in chapter 8, the disciples are beginning to get it. I think kind of, right? (laughs) The disciples are a little slow sometimes. But they're starting to get who it is this person is that they've been following these last two years. But they're really struggling to understand what he means. Because he says, yes, I'm a king, but I'm not anything like the king you were expecting. So Jesus says these two key things, these two key phrases that I want to just highlight before we jump into our passage today. And he says, I am the king, but I am a king going to a cross. And then the second thing he says in this passage is, if you want to follow me, you've got to take up your cross too. This is a dynamic conversation that we're going to look at tonight, Uh, but before we dive in, let's just go ahead and pray and invite the Holy Spirit to be with us. 
Lord Jesus, we do. We ask that your Holy Spirit would come. Mm. Just come close, Lord Jesus. Lord, we need your presence. And I pray, God, that you, you would reveal yourself to us through your scriptures tonight. Lord, that you would comfort us just by the beauty of your sacrifice for us. That for the joy set before you, you endured the cross. We give you this time, and we just ask, Lord Jesus, you would come and have your way. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today, we're going to be looking at, like I said, Mark 8, but it's verses 20, 27 through 38. And uh, you can follow along on the screens. Um, the gospel according to Mark, it is one of the first accounts of the life of Jesus, so it's one of the first, it's the first written gospel. And our earliest historical traditions, they link this book to a Christian scribe named Mark, or John Mark. And now he is a co-worker with Paul. He works alongside of Paul. But he's also a close, close companion and partner with Peter. And in fact, an ancient church historian, there's an ancient church historian named Papias, and he recalls that Mark collected all of the eyewitness accounts and the memories of what he's compiled here from Peter. And then he shapes this account. Now Mark, he's this writer with, I don't know, kind of a great economy in his style because it's not only the shortest of the Gospels, but there is so much packed into this book. There's just so much packed into a small amount of space. I mean, it's full of action, it's full of energy, it's full of facts, and it's full of the humanity of Jesus which I love. So let's first just set the scene to our story because we're, we're picking up right in the middle here. So let's set the scene for the story and then we're going to walk through this dialogue verse by verse. So in Mark 8, 27, Jesus and his disciples went on to the village, villages around Caesarea Philippi or Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? Now, Jesus is taking the disciples on a trip, and he's going about uh, 25 miles north, and he's going to the side of this mountain, this Mount, Mount um, Hermon. Now, this is it's kind of an interesting fact, and a place that we kind of see this story unfold, is that this is a pagan city to the core, to the core. It was, it was kind of like a strip mall for all the gods. That's just what it was. It was literally um, just temple after temple after temple carved into the side of this mountain, just worshiping God after God after God after God. That's what it was. And here they are, and Jesus comes here of all places to reveal his identity to, to the disciples, that he is the king. And I wonder why he would do that. Why do you think he would come to here? to this mountainside of all places to reveal his identity. Because I think he is saying, I'm not just any king, I am the king, right? He's making that statement, I am the king. And he's asking them, hey guys, by the way, who do people say that I am? What's the word on the street about who I am? I would love to hear what people are saying, right? And in Mark 8, 28 through 29, they answer really honestly. <laughs> they just tell him, well, you know, some people say you're John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asks. Who do you say that I am? And this is interesting. 
But who do you is really emphatic in the Greek. So it starts a new, new phrase here. What matters most to Jesus is who they, the disciples, say that he is. Because of all the people, these men have been traveling with him for what, about two years? They should know who he is by now, right? Right? <clears throat> and it's a really raw question to ask because it's vulnerable. Who do you guys say that I am? And I think at some point, each of us have to answer that same question, don't we? We have to wrestle with who we think Jesus is. And I think it's a great question for all of us to ask ourselves. Sure, he was one of the most influential man, men in history, but no matter if you're a follower of Jesus or if you're an atheist, you need to wrestle with who Jesus is. Now, I know for the first, in the first century, there were all sorts of ideas who Jesus was. Like they said, they think he's John, the baptizer, back from the dead. Um, some of them think that he's Elijah, back from the dead. And then others think that he's one of the prophets. But today, we have the same issue, don't we? We have all sorts of ideas about who Jesus is. We have ideas that, well, he was just this really great teacher. Uh, or that he was just a really good moral person. There's lots of ideas about who Jesus is today, but we all, we all need to wrestle with that great question. And in the, then what we find out is that one of the disciples pipes up, and of course, it's Peter. In Mark 8, 29, Peter answers, you are the Messiah. He gets it right. You are the Messiah. And the word Messiah literally means anointed one. Anointed one. He's the king to end all kings. He's the one who would put everything right. But watch what happens. The very next verse, Mark 30. Jesus warned them not to tell anybody about him. <laughs> now this is interesting because Peter makes this absolutely incredible claim. It's the first time we're hearing it in all of the Gospel of Mark. He says, yes, I am the Messiah, but don't tell anybody about me. Now, why would he do this? And I think it might be for two, just maybe two reasons. First, it's a political title, right? Just as much as it's a spiritual title. The word Messiah means king or anointed one. And he's saying, you know, this is, this is really risky to just go out and start telling people that I'm the Messiah. It's a dangerous claim to make when the world you're living in already has a king on the throne. Because... It's either revolution or execution. There really is no in-between for Jesus. And he knows this. And then secondly, what I think is, is that Peter means, what Peter means by the Messiah, when he says that, and what Jesus means by it, are two very different things. Very different things. When Peter says, you are the Messiah, it becomes clear that he means that Jesus is the victorious military king from the line of David, who will rescue Israel from the Romans. And you see, the, the vast majority of people in that day in Israel thought that the coming Messiah was a warrior and that he was literally going to start a war with Rome. And he was going to crush the empire, the pagans, all the non-Jewish people, and usher in an age of Israeli dominance. And this was the mindset of many of the first, peop first century people about the coming Messiah. 
See, Jesus knows they don't fully see it yet. They don't fully get it yet. That's why he's saying, don't just go around and start telling people this, because I know you don't really know what it means yet. So right after Peter says, you're the Messiah, Jesus turns around and is really saying, yes, but I'm not the kind of Messiah that you're expecting. I'm a very different kind of Messiah. And that brings us to our first point. What Jesus is saying is, I am the king, but I am a king going to a cross. And he says and continues in, in verse 31, he then began to teach them, which means he's starting to teach them something completely new, completely new. He then began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, priests and the teachers of the law, and then he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. There's no riddles anymore. There's no cryptic speech. He speaks plainly. Jesus is telling them finally about his death and resurrection. And what's interesting is he had been already talking about his death and resurrection for a while, but it was in symbols and pictures. He hadn't outright told them yet. So this is the first time that we see Jesus actually saying out loud that he has come to die. And not just come to die, but that he must die. That's an interesting word, isn't it? And, and really that word, that must, is such a key word to understanding the mission of Jesus. It is so key. And, I, and honestly, I wish I had more time to kind of unpack that. But there is a mustness to Jesus' death and suffering. Jesus says it's absolutely necessary that I die. The world can't be changed, the world can't be renewed, and your life can't be renewed unless I die. Hmm. And not just die, but Jesus is going, he's saying, you know what, I'm not just going to die, I'm going to suffer. And I'm going to suffer at the hands of the Sanhedrin and the religious elite, which is really rare and would have been completely just unheard of in the first century. Jesus, what he's doing here is he's bringing together these two ideas that have never been brought together before in history. And it's, it's just paramount. This kind of congruence of these two ideas that seemed almost completely opposite to one another. Yeah, you know, if you look at the Old Testament, you see that there are prophecies all over the place about a suffering servant, and you hear that, especially in Isaiah, but none about the idea of a suffering savior. This was new. This was new. And it makes absolutely no sense to, to the disciples at all. They're just mystified. Jesus is saying, I am not the kind of leader that you are expecting. I'm not going to Jerusalem to live. I'm actually going there to die. I'm not going to Jerusalem to take power. I'm going to lose it. I'm not going to Jerusalem to rule, but I'm going to go to Jerusalem to serve. He's revealing the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God, which is utterly foreign to the disciples at this point. And this is why he says, right after this, in verse 32, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, because Peter couldn't get it. He couldn't accept what Jesus was saying here. It was unacceptable. Peter is is taking Jesus aside, and he's, the word they use for rebuke there is the same word that Jesus uses for when he rebukes a demon 
and tells them to leave. That's the same word that, that Peter is using here to, to talk to Jesus, which I almost say, I don't think I would recommend that for sure. Uh, but Peter can, he can accept a Messiah that looks like, you know, fame and, and power and prestige and influence, but not a Messiah of death. What is that? He cannot even wrap his mind around this. And he says, no, this cannot happen to Jesus. And I'm sure he had his own motives too, right? We all have kind of our mixed motives for probably why he was saying this. But what would it mean for him if Jesus were not the conquering king like he thought? He might not be on the right-hand side of the throne, you know, one day. Um, But this is what we see then in verse 33. Jesus' response here. But when Jesus turned and looked at the disciples, he rebuked Peter, get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Woo, get behind me. Meaning, Peter, you're standing in my way. You're standing in my way. You are in opposition to God's calling on my life. Don't block me. Move over and get behind me. <laughs> I'm going to the cross. And, and what do you think you know, Jesus is getting at here? Because I want to take a moment to kind of look at this. Jesus is saying that in that moment, Peter is in league with, or at least he's acting like Satan. Why? <clears throat> because he's actually tempting Jesus to avoid the cross. Think of Satan's temptation early on in Jesus' ministry in the wilderness. Isn't that exactly what Satan did to tempt Jesus? Don't go the way of the cross, Jesus. Don't go the way of suffering. Go the way of fame and wealth and power, all the loyalty and all the allegiance, but without the cross. And here it is again. And yet, this time... It's coming from one of his own. Hmm. For those in that day, you know, the cross, it was the epitome of helplessness and shame. I mean, it's just inconceivable to imagine Jesus being on a cross. Every other form of execution in that day gave a person being executed a lot more dignity. With a cross, you're stripped naked, you're nailed open, everyone's gawking at you. It is the exact opposite of a throne. It is the exact opposite of a throne. And this is what's so appalling to Peter, and for us today as well, if we're honest. I think it's the opposite of what we really think real power and influence should look like. To be a king or to be a leader, even in our day, is to be served, not to serve. It's to be first, to be up front, to be on a stage, to be recognized, to be respected. That's what leadership looks like, right? Isn't that what leadership is? Being acknowledged, being applauded, to have the biggest crowds. (laughs) But in Matthew 20, 28, it says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life for the ransom of many. For us today, I know we might not grow up like Peter did, dreaming of a war with Rome, (laughs) right? But we do grow up swimming in consumerism, and it colors. I mean, that, that American mindset distorts and colors what success looks like to us, doesn't it? The, it affects how we view God. It really does. 
because we start seeing him as a genie in the bottle. We start seeing him as part therapist, part fan club. Yeah, Jesus, make me feel good about myself. And part financial advisor. I mean, you just name it. In this world, it can be easy that, to just think of God as existing for me, that he exists for me. And I think that, honestly, that's one of the major issues facing the church today is that we're basically, more and more, we're making up our own versions of Jesus. We're starting to combine the American culture that we've been saturated in for so long and the kingdom of God's culture. We're starting to combine them, and we're starting to make up our own versions of Jesus. And here's how you know if you're starting to make up your own version of Jesus. He looks just like you. He looks just like you. He voted for the same guy you voted for. He voted against the same guy you voted against. He spends his money just the same way that you spend your money. He thinks just how you think, and he judges the people you judge, and he loves the people that you love. He looks just like you. You know, I know that it's easier to relate to Jesus on our own terms. A Jesus that you create, well, it fits better (laughs) into your life and into your world. But it also means then Jesus can't challenge you. He can't contradict you. And you know what that ultimately means? It means he can't change us. He can't change us. If you want Jesus, a Jesus that can transform your life, you need the real Jesus. The real Jesus. We need to ask ourselves once in a while and on occasion, where am I off in how I think about Jesus. Where am I off? We need to recognize our blindness, that we don't see the full picture, that we don't have all the knowledge. We need to come to the Lord with a heart of humility, right? Rather thinking that we know already what he looks like. And I think that's why we we need these gospels, why it's so refreshing to go through the book of Mark like we will be in this series. Because we, got, we start to see this real picture of Jesus. And when, we, when we, we come to the word and we say, God, would you show me who you are? Would you show me how to follow you? And then we come up against a picture of Jesus that kind of ruffles our feathers or, or that just doesn't fit our paradigm. Well, then instead of just brushing that away and ignoring it or pressing on, we, we need to wrestle with the discomfort and, and the and really try to change our view of who Jesus is. Now, the second statement that Jesus makes here in this passage, which is just paramount, is that if you want to follow me, you also have to take up your cross. Boy. And this is what we read continuing in verse 34. Mark 8, 34. Then he called the crowd to, to him along with the disciples, and he said, whoever wants to be my disciple but deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Now he's talking to the crowd now. He's talking to the crowd, not just the disciples. And he's saying, guys, there is an open invite to be one of my disciples. I mean, how great is that? There's an open invite. Anybody can be my, my disciple. You don't have to be super smart. You don't have to be really have your life together. But what you, you do need to do is you will have to die to yourself. <laughs> just going to tell you right up in front. And he does. I mean, he's really honest. He says, guys, you are going to have to deny yourself. 
And this is, this is what the word deny means in the Greek. It's aparneoma, and it means to subdue, to disown, to forget oneself. Mm. It means saying no, and this is important, not to some behavior. It is not saying no to some behavior. It is saying no to yourself. It's saying no to yourself. It means saying yes to Christ, letting Christ reign and rule in your life and in your heart. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he wrote, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Hmm. And that, I don't know about you, seems utterly impossible, doesn't it? What does that look like? You know, I think it is so hard for us to grasp this idea of denial because our whole world seems to go against this concept of, of denying yourself. Because if you ask anyone, one of the things they want most in their life, and even in our lives, what we most want at times, we want to be happy. We want to be happy. And we're convinced that the path to happiness means saying yes to ourselves. Doesn't it? Right? I'm going to say yes to the things I want to do today. And that's going to make me happy. Indulgence is the path to happiness, at least the world says. So denying ourselves would logically seem to go against what we would want most. I mean, nobody grows up saying, you know what? When I grow up, I'm going to deny myself. I'm going to die to myself. And I want to become a servant. Like, nobody says that. (laughs) But the reality is that is what Jesus calls us to do. That's what he calls us to do, to take up. That's what taking up our cross really means. See, if you are a Christian, it is not enough to survey the wondrous cross. We must embrace the cross for ourselves every day. Every day. Luke 9, 23 recounts the same passage that we're looking at in Mark 8. But he says this. There's one word that's different here, which is so helpful. He says, then he said to all of them, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. The cross is not the tribulations or the problems or the difficulties we're encountering in our life right now. It's not our bad knee and our, you know, bad eyesight and our frizzy hair. It's, you know, it's not any of those things. That's not what he means by bearing our cross. The cross is the place where you and I get crossed out. That's the place of the cross. To be followers of Jesus means that we have to die to our ego. We have to die to our demands, to our control, to our rights. This is hard stuff. (laughs) This is really hard. And and it's that thing that keeps screaming inside of us, no, my will be done. My will be done. That's the thing that has to die. That's the thing that has to die. To pick up our cross means that we entirely surrender ourselves to God. And it's not just once that we do this, right? There is that initial dying for sure. But then there's that daily denial of ourselves. Maybe that looks like for you, maybe that looks like serving without needing to be seen or be thanked or recognized. Ouch. Maybe for you it's giving 
without congratulating yourself. Maybe it's waiting patiently instead of reacting. Maybe it's actively listening and engaging with someone without the need to also be heard. Hmm. Maybe it's relinquishing control in all its many forms. <laughs> Maybe it's forgiving, even when knowing that the other person doesn't know how much they've hurt you. You know, I remember a time in college when I was hurt by a really dear friend. <laughs> I might cry because this just brings back such <laughs> emotion. I remember telling my dad about it. I called him and I just I complained and lamented on the phone with him. I told her told him about how much she had hurt me and what she had done, and and then he gave me some of the worst advice. <laughs> well, it was actually the best advice. It was just really, really hard. He said, "Okay, Heather." <clears throat> I want you to write her a letter, and I want you to tell her everything that she did that hurt you. And I want you to tell her how it made you feel. And I want you to tell her how angry it made you. And then I want you to do something. <clears throat> I want you to not give it to her. Huh. And he said, I want you to tear it up. <sighs> what he was saying was that I needed to recognize the hurt, I needed to recognize the cost, right, the pain, but then I needed to give it to Jesus. I needed to make that exchange with him, and I needed to forgive her. I still remember what it felt like to tear those, I mean, it's like so tangible. I still remember what it felt like to tear that up. And I've never told her, <laughs> because I gave it to the Lord. And it was just beautifully wonderful how he just took it and he worked it out in ways that just surprised me and made me smile. <clears throat> All day long, the choice is before us in a thousand different ways, isn't it? But it is utterly impossible to do any of that without God. It's just so impossible. But you know what? He never asks us to do anything that he hasn't already done. That he hasn't already done. Jesus isn't just our example, the one who's gone before us, but he's our great helper, isn't he? He's our great helper. We can die to ourselves because he first died for us. He first died for us. And unlike popular opinion, the cross, as we come to find out, is a place of incredible power and freedom. In 1 Corinthians 1:18, it says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is the power of God. And then he, he moves on and he, and he continues in Mark 8, verse 35. He says, Forever who wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with his holy angels. You know, this word here <clears throat> for soul is actually the same word for life in the Greek, and it's psyche. That's where we get the word psychology. And basically, it's the idea that your soul is the core of your existence. It's what makes you you. It's your identity. 
It's your identity. And Jesus is saying here, guys, don't build your identity on gaining the world, which honestly is what most of us do, right? (laughs) In our natural selves, that's where we get our identity. It's from our achievements. It's what we do, right? What we show, what we prove, what we convey to people. But instead, Jesus is saying, build your identity on me. Build your life on me and the gospel, and this is where you'll find your identity. This is where you'll find your life, real life, abundant life. And there's this beautiful line uh, from Mere Christianity written by C.S. Lewis, and if you haven't read it yet, it is such a great read. It's, it's hefty, but it's so good. It is so good. And he writes this about Mark 8. He says this about Mark 8. He says, the more that we get what we now call ourselves out of the way and let him take over, the more truly ourselves we become. Our real selves are all waiting for us in him. The more I resist him and try to live on my own, the more I become dominated by my own heredity and upbringing and surroundings and natural desires. In fact, what I so proudly call myself becomes merely the meeting place for trains of events which I never start and which I cannot stop. What I call my wishes become merely the desires thrown up by my physical organism and pumped into me by other men's thoughts. It is when I turn to Christ, when I give myself up to his personality, that I begin to have a real personality of my own. Mm. And this is what Jesus is getting at. Find your life, your psyche, your identity in me and in the gospel, in the good news. Matthew 20, 26 through 28 says, Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must become your servant, and whoever wants to be first must become your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to serve, to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And the kingdom of God is so very, very different than the kingdoms of this world, isn't it? You get exalted by getting low. What is that? You get filled by emptying yourself. <laughs> Abundance is actually measured by what you've given away, not by what you have. And it's never measured by what you keep, but what you release. It's an upside-down kingdom. It's an upside-down kingdom. Now, in closing, I want to read a little bit more of this passage from C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity because it's just so beautiful, and it sums it up all so well. He says, Give up yourself, and you will find your real self. Lose your life, and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body to the end. Submit with every fiber of your being, and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have, not given away, will ever really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from from the dead. Look for yourself, and you will find, in the long run, only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. Jesus is a different kind of Messiah, and he wants us 
to become different kinds of disciples. Amen? Well, let's go ahead and stand. We're actually going to go into a time of worship, and then after that, we are going to actually take corporate communion together. So if you haven't already grabbed the elements during a worship here, just go ahead and go to the back and grab those elements and bring them back to your seats. And uh, after we worship, we'll, we'll go through communion, and then I'll come back up uh, for a time of response. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. I hope that what you heard has encouraged you in your walk with Jesus. For more information and to contact us, go to vcdc.org. We'll bless you. Have a wonderful week.